0: Hello and welcome to the PD Performance Podcast. This week's podcast is a conversation with Colin Griffin. Colin is a strength and conditioning coach currently working in Santry Sports Surgery Clinic. He's also a former Olympic race walker. Colin is carrying out his PhD currently in the area of Achilles tendinopathy. So we had a really in-depth discussion on Achilles tendinopathy, the mechanisms behind it and how to rehab such injuries. We then moved on to talking about the recent Olympics in Tokyo, how he views the Olympics now, having gone through that experience twice himself in 2008 and 2012, how he can now empathise with the athletes who have gone through that process for the first time. And then we had a conversation about his transition from race walking to running in recent years, how he's managed to structure his training, get the most out of himself in his new pursuit of long distance running, and how his strength and conditioning program has aided him to do so so i hope you enjoy it and remember if you do enjoy it please remember to like it share it and send it this podcast is sponsored by coach sam portland who is also known as coach portland on instagram and facebook sam has devised a mentorship program for strength and conditioning coaches that gives them the tools to take control of and change their lives I can testify to this given that I participated in the programme earlier this year. Sam has coached international rugby players, Olympic athletes and elite level American footballers. Using all of his experience, the mentorship programme puts you the coach first giving you systems of application from speed and change of direction to the minute detail of speed coaching, program development, injury rehab and much, much more. It will help you distill your current knowledge and allow you to beat the battle of information overload that industry currently faces. What separates this mentorship program from the rest is the personal development aspect. 50% of the program is dedicated to you getting to know yourself further as a coach. I can safely say that this is the aspect that makes the most meaningful and significant change, helping you to find the right balance between elite level coaching and living a happy and purposeful life. If you're interested and want to learn more, for PD Performance Podcast listeners only, Sam is offering five 60-minute coach audit calls valued at £150 for free. To register for this unique opportunity send sam an email with the subject line pd performance mentorship to sam at coachsportland.co.uk only five autocalls are up for grabs so go and get after it now on to the podcast colin how are you doing we were just chatting off air there having a bit of a laugh and a joke it's quite a busy time for you at the moment so i am very happy that i managed to get you for an hour or so and get you on the podcast so cheers for coming on what's going on today and uh, uh yeah how are you managing everything
1: well yeah thanks peter for having me on and delighted to be, to be on your guest on, on your podcast and i know you're you're uh, i suppose pretty new to this and uh it's good to have people um delving deeper into i suppose athletes and practitioners in the world of sport and uh i suppose trying to get an interesting angle on them so um happy to be to be involved and, and wish you the best of luck with it um no all good yeah working away at the moment. Um, As we speak now of a baby due any day, her second. So, uh, this was an exciting uh, and unpredictable period ahead. But, uh, no, listen, it's, it's all good. There's a
0: lot of COVID babies going around at the moment, especially in the strength and conditioning community. You're the third person. That I've had on strength and conditioning coach in the last month that is expecting a child. So there's something there. Maybe there's yeah. a study study there for someone to do over the last five. You never know, know now. Yeah, he's never. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> so, so you're not in Santry today. I take it then you're taking a couple of days off.
1: No, no. I, I'm still working at the moment. Uh, I'm not scheduled to be on leave for next week. But um, I normally do my PhD work on a Wednesday. So um, I normally unless I'm in, sometimes I go in for for testing if I've got a, a um, if I've got a, a testing schedule that week for my study. But if not, then I'm usually doing some writing or reading or stats work um in my my home
0: office we might as well go straight into the the research then that you're carrying out at the moment because obviously the sports surgery clinic in santry are great at kind of pushing their their workers and their employees down that kind of line and giving them the time to go and work on that and they're really they encourage you to do that so you're currently completing your phd and it's in achilles tendinopathy rehab and lower limb mechanics. Yeah. And you're doing that with J.B. Moran, is
1: it? Yeah, Professor J.B. Moran uh, in University of Côte d'Azur in France, but he's actually now with the University Centre saint but I'm still affiliated to his, his old university of the University of Côte d'Azur in Nice, uh, and um, along with uh, Dr. Annie Franklin Miller in the sports medicine department in the, in the sports surgery clinic in Dublin. So uh, yeah, it's a joint, so it's collaboration between the SSE and, and and the university i affiliated So. I suppose it's it's a model that the clinic have had going for the last uh, maybe nine or ten years. Um, it would have started off back in back about yeah back in about twenty eleven twenty twelve. Um, initially, there would have been a few PhDs going in ACL rehab research and athletic groin pain kind of research. So, uh, so a few of my I suppose, colleagues have um come out to decide that in the last few years, and then we started branching into shoulder rehab, um, concussion rehab, and I suppose wider sort of knee-related um, rehab topics, and that was mine was the, kind of the first sort of lower limb, kind of focusing on the the, Achilles area, so an area I've been interested in for a while. Generally, the way I work in the clinic, um, I lead the foot and ankle rehabilitation streams. so um, not long after, I've been working there the last seven and a half years, and one of the more enjoyable injury cases would have been Achilles injuries, um, particularly these and found it's getting good results with them. And I suppose delve a little bit deeper in the topic. And I suppose there's still a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of unanswered questions in terms of um, how we assess and how we progress to rehab and how we clear people to return back to sport. So over a few couple of years, as I was completing my master's, I was kind of formulating a research question. And then, um, you know, there's a question of who would be the, I suppose, the best, if we're looking at a biomechanics angle, who would be the best supervisor to have on board? And Professor Jabin we're in is quite amenable and I suppose being been based in Europe, um, quite accessible as well. So that's how we kind of teed it up and um, started in 2017. And um initially we thought in an mean, ideal world it'd be a three-year project, but uh we're probably going to a fifth year now. So um just with COVID has kind of slowed things down a little bit, um especially with the reliance on um, my subjects being able to access the gym to be able to carry the rehab program, um, depending on which group they're in. So that was a little bit tricky in the last year and a half when gyms were kind of closed on and off. So yeah, look, uh, my, my, my PhD requires uh, at least two papers to be published as, as lead author. So I have one paper published in the last few weeks. It was a protocol paper for our main study and a few other small studies on, on, on ongoing at the moment.
0: Okay, so loads of questions on this. Obviously, working with JB Marin is fantastic, as you said, um, if you're looking down the biomechanics mm-hmm. route. And I, I would assume in the realm of Achilles tendinopathy, you're dealing with a lot of runners. So yeah. obviously he's quite useful there, being that he has such a background background in speed mechanics and developing speed as well. Yeah. So while, while looking at the Achilles tendinopathy, like how many participants are kind of in the studies at the moment, or is it basically everybody that comes through the sports surgery clinic that presents with that kind of issue in the foot and ankle kind of complex?
1: Yeah, no, um, we have, I suppose, uh, strict enough inclusion and exclusion criteria, so... Um... It's people who have chronic mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. um, So have symptoms longer than three months, but no longer than, but no more than three years, um, age 18 to 45. Participate in sports that involve running. So it can be distance running, it can be sprint athletes, it can be, you know, sprint track athletes, it can be field sport players, and they can be elite to sub-elite to sort of recreate. Once they they do some sort of sport that involves running and practice it regularly at least three times a week, that sort of, that includes them. And once they've no other lower limb injury and haven't had an injection into the site in the last six months, and um, so we recruit them internally uh, you know, to the clinic and also i have been trying to push to recruit externally so either even if they come in externally they see or they yeah, somewhere on social media or by word of mouth they still have to come in and be assessed by one of our doctors have an MRI scan and have the diagnosis confirmed and then they're um, brought in for baseline testing and then they're randomized into one of two groups again one group will be trialing the the protocol we've put together that we're that we're testing, and the other group will 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 follow. Um, I suppose another research based protocol. Um, and both of us was the intention to get better, but I suppose a few questions we want to see does is is our one, one a bit more effective in terms of getting a quicker return back to sport, getting getting I suppose a, a bigger improvement from week zero to week six. So do the program for twelve weeks. We test at the start at week six and week twelve, and then then we do a six month, twelve month, and a two year follow up. And for the, for the overall study, and this will go beyond my PhD, we hope to we hope to have maybe 60 participants. So that could take a few years. But the fact that I've had a protocol paper published, um, if I get at least 30, 35 participants by next spring, uh, along with completing two other smaller studies, I'll have enough then to write out my thesis and hopefully get my PhD out of that. But the, but the main study will, will be ongoing for another maybe two or three years. And hopefully then we we'll get a good publication from that. So the fact that we've got our, our protocol paper peer reviewed already and published, it means that. We've got a very good robust study in place we can't move the goalposts um you know so it just means that it, it's it's it meets all this was the transparency um criteria and um you know so again once we get through it we, we, we'll hopefully get a good a good high impact publication in one of the more
0: prominent journals great i'd have i have a couple of questions there actually off the back of that the first one being i would say that it's probably well this is my impression now it would be fairly hard or fairly rare to find a lot of people that are presenting with just achilles tendinopathy and absolutely nothing else so is it, mm-hmm. it it's obviously not no previous injury history because obviously if you're dealing with some sort of achilles tendinopathy it's probably going to transmit somewhere up the chain again and and present somewhere else as well i would have thought anyway
1: yeah, no, that's a valid point. Um, so, just no other injury at present. So, they may have had an injury six months ago or a year ago, but if, if that's not an issue now, we're, and it's just a kid's tendonopathy mid portion, so the middle of the tendon is, as opposed to around the, the heel insertion, um, you know, and, and all the rest of the criteria, we, we, we'll take them in. So, we still want to keep it because there's a lot of other factors that can cause or, or contribute to tendonopathy. So, older people, you know, who are more predisposed to metabolic disorders, other sort of health issues, they could have metabolic factors that are driving the condition. So we kind of want to keep it a sports-based people of like that sort of young to middle-aged population where we know there's likely to be like an overload because of sport and maybe poor capacity because of maybe a lack of conditioning in the calf or poor properties of the tendon um, that might be causing it. Um, as opposed to other maybe metabolic factors that might meet a, meet a, more, a more wider um, approach to rehab.
0: I know you said that kind of it, it got upset a little bit because of the timing of the whole lockdowns, pandemic, people not having access to gyms. Mm. But how appropriate is it now to have this study finished after this if we go into another pandemic and people go from a major kind of reduction in load to a huge spike? So as I said, I I thought it would be fairly difficult to or rare to find somebody that is just presenting with the achilles tendinopathy initially i'd say if loads of people mm-hmm. now that are presented all of a sudden because of everybody getting back to sport and getting back to loads of load but i suppose you can't use yep. them now because you're already well into the study oh no we can still know
1: we're, we're still recruiting people so it's not that the door's still open so there will come a point where we'll um you know once we hit our 60 people you know um that we'll, we'll finish recruiting but uh, at the moment now we're, we're still taking on new people like so uh that door is open. So yeah, look. I mean, even this time last year, when things started to open up again after the summer, we had a big intake, and um, because people were running a lot more during lockdown, or maybe those in field sports who were training on their own and their own in small groups or pods and going back on back to formal team training, where the loads increased, where you just really can't replicate on your own. And um, that was also a, a perfect storm for developing conditions like this. So yeah, we're probably getting into that again now that things are have opened up a bit over the summer. So um, yeah, no, it is. <laughs> it's definitely been a. COVID has been a big factor in, 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 in uh, I suppose, how these injuries develop.
0: Yeah, and obviously everybody was out in the roads over when everything was locked down, as you said there, so they were getting a lot of repetition and lots yeah. of people went from zero kind of low intensity and repetitive load like that on the road to a lot of people just start going every day because they said, oh, I used to run every day, so I might as well just go back to yeah. it. So a lot of them are probably um, suffering from such symptoms. Was there a reason you picked the mid portion of the Achilles? Is it because is that harder to get rid of traditionally than down near the patching or insertion?
1: Uh, Not really. Some, some other, other studies would would like just would would take both uh, insertion and mid portion. Um, We just want to narrow it down a little bit more because insertion, sometimes might take a little bit of a different approach. And sometimes with insertion, you might have the bursa involved as well, which might require extra, an extra intervention to try and get rid of that as well as trying to uh, to sort out of the tendinopathy so um no we just want to try and narrow down the focus a little bit um we probably the probably mid-portion is a lot more more common than say insertional so um and i suppose the rehab approach it's just better easier to standardize it that way rather than trying to encompass uh, insertional tendinopathy into it when maybe other things involved
0: and so you're using mainly kind of people of an athletics background so obviously you're approach can be a little bit more linear because you're not if you were working with team sport athletes essentially you'd be trying to manage them week to week or fortnight to fortnight so that you could get them on the field. But I suppose with the athletics kind of uh participants, you can kind of aim for say a set endpoint that you want to get them for over the 12 weeks. 12 weeks you said, was it?
1: Yeah, yeah. But um it, and, and and we we I said we still are taking um, field sport players as well as 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 track athletes and road athletes. So um and people just run recreationally. So, but the program is kind of similar, except when we do assess for the start, we we, we individualize, we we've certain criteria that will um will enable us to, I suppose, um describe that the level they should come in at and how they progress through it and try and aim to hit certain targets, um, strength targets, so have a, a certain amount of calf strength relative to their body weight, and then be able to have a certain level of asymmetry, I uh, suppose a maximum level of asymmetry in single leg hops or single leg parametric exercise before they progress on. But we let them sort of um we let them whatever running program they're used to or, or able to do, we let them sort of work work away in that within tolerable limits. So whatever level of running they can do, that's not sore or, or provocative, we let them work away on that. We give them a little bit of guidance in that, but um and we do assess the running mechanics and see how that changes throughout the course of the program. But generally, yeah, um it, it, it's criteria based, uh particularly my group, whereas the other group then has a more sort of daily sort of generalized program um where they where they progress based on pain, whereas our group we kind of try to be a little bit more aggressive with it and see can we if you hit a certain level of, of strength does that take care of the pain because your functions got better and your is increased and it takes a lot more for that pain to be induced
0: okay obviously if kpis that you want to hit that you just uh, kind of alluded to there when you were saying in terms of the symmetry and in terms of the the amount of strength that you want them to be able to or the force that they're able to output in the calf mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the intervention is the intervention then even though they're grouped is the intervention yeah. fairly individualized or is there kind of various kind of specific methods or specific kind of exercises that you're using to progress them through those? Uh, a little bit of
1: individualization and there will be some, I suppose, standard calf that they'll do anyway, but just where they come in at might just differ from person to person based on their, on their baseline assessments. So for example, we'll test calf strength with straight leg, where you get a, a measure of total plantar flexor. So all the calf muscles peak force. I would test them with, with knee bent to get, to bias the soleus a little bit more. And if we find that the soleus strength is at a good level, you know, we'll just do mainly straight leg calf raises. And um, But if we find that the soleus bent knee calf strength is down, we'll, we'll also maybe hit the soleus a little bit more with some bent knee calf work as well as straight leg uh, calf work. Um, but if they come in with a good level of strength, but not too sore, and they can tolerate some hopping, we'll, we probably will bring in some plyometrics earlier on as well. So some can, we'll, we'll do some plyos from the start. Or this might wait till maybe week four or week six before they bring in some plyos, depending on this, this, the level of strength and their level of, I suppose, tolerance to, to plyometric exercises.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'd be interested, number one, to ask you, is a kind of 50-50 split then in terms of who's presenting with weeks soleus? like Because obviously people typically would neglect the soleus in their strength training and they don't get that bent knee kind of stimulus. And then the second, mm. add a long question to that, is in terms of the plyos, you're obviously probably starting with sort of extensive plyos and it's probably fairly vertical, I'd say, but is there, in kind of their application, start, yeah. but are you doing any horizontal yeah. stuff as well and even lateral or rotational? Yeah. Probably not rotational yeah, because so you don't need it. But uh,
1: It depends on, on, on the player stuff. That, yeah, but we're, we're to work back to start. and um, We'll start off some just basic pogo hops on the spot and um, just look, because a lot of them won't have done much plyos before or, or, or if at all. So just make sure that they're executed well, the technique is good, they're smooth in the ground, um, they've got the basics in place, build up a little bit of capacity doing that, then we'll, do the, then we'll do double leg pogo hops going forward. And if they do play field sports, we'll bring in a lateral component to it as well. And then progress on a single leg pogo hops in place, forward, side, side, if they need to. And then we we'll start to bring in some drop jumps and then more intensive um, horizontal rebound type exercises. But um, in terms of outcome measures, like for assessing plyometric abilities, we'll do a drop jump, double leg, single leg, and also a single leg horizontal rebound task as well so get a measure of vertical as well as horizontal plyometric ability so with with the horizontal hop test and um, that was one of my studies in my phd where i did a test retest reliability in that because there's no real standardized way of measuring horizontal plyometric um, ability um that's what that people commonly use so everyone is familiar with drop jumps and, and some people have used like a horizontal hop or just like a hop for distance but, but bringing a horizontal rebound component component into it and then trying to measure um horizontal reactive strength so your your hop distance divided by your contact time. Um, so it's a slightly different quality, maybe. And what we what um others have found in the last year or two is that if you're looking at joint contribution to vertical plyometrics, it's fairly evenly split between ankle, knee, and hip. Um whereas if you're going horizontal, you've got bigger contributions from the ankle, hence the calf muscles and the hip muscles, and less from the knee. The knee is more involved during landing because it's more of an absorber. Um whereas for propulsion, your calf muscles and your hippie senses are, are, are the prime. Are the, are the, are the, um, the primary um, contributors there so you can you know test quite well in a, in a vertical drop jump and you may think everything is fine but you mightn't be getting a true measure of your ankle or calf capability so when you do a horizontal one and, and it might throw up things that you might, that you might miss in a vertical uh, drop jump.
0: This might seem like a weird question now but in terms of the horizontal um, jump or the horizontal rebound are you looking for them to stick that landing then because obviously they could be really, really good. You just you just alluded yeah. to it there. They could be really good at producing force and they're using the ankle to produce that force out very, very far, but then they mightn't have the ability in the knee to absorb that force. So I'm, I'm interested there.
1: Yeah, no, we, we do in our, in our test, um, we do encourage them to try and make a reasonable attempt to stabilise in the land, just more so we can actually measure the distance properly. So you know, we're able to measure that in the lab. So we have our force plates and we have them marked up and we get 3D motion capture so we can detect their takeoff point and where they land um, but we do just, we just try and cue them to make a reasonable attempt at landing so if they can land and there's not too much a wobble we'll take that as a valid trial but if they land and they take about two or three little mini hops afterwards before they come to a stop so then we'll, we'll uh disregard that gas and do it again
0: okay cool and then to go back to the soleus strengthening um is it kind of 50 50 presenting with gastroc weakness and and 50 percent say with uh, soleus or are you seeing more of the other, or like, it could be entirely case-dependent. Yeah, do
1: you know what, I've seen people coming in actually with with reasonable calf strength, uh, and yet they're still source. that's probably asking further questions, so um, it may be, and we can't measure this, so we don't don't have um, the provision to do it, but like, it may be that they don't have the the mechanical properties in their tendon, you know, to to handle the the calf strength they might have. Um, So some people come in and hit calf scores that are actually similar to healthy elite athletes, but, does it change what we do probably not because we know that when we do heavy calf loading um yes you're working the calf muscles but when, when it's heavy enough and slow enough um you're also giving the tendon a good stimulus and that can help to improve the tendon stimulus over time so there was a, a group in, in in germany who did a lot of work on adolescent volleyball players and there's more for patella tendinopathies, but they can have a dis- disproportionate development of quad muscle hypertrophy because of the work they do but the tendon is kind of slow to catch up and that can contribute to patella tendon um tendinopathy because again, in sports that involve a lot of jumping, that's that's, that's quite common um, injury in, in those sports, so like volleyball. In that in that case, or other type of jump jump sports. Um, so you could probably say the same applies to calf strength as well. just the tendon may not be resilient enough to match the calf strength that some people might have. Now, I'm not saying that everyone that come in have a, a super strong calf strength, but they mm-hmm. they probably have calf strength that other people other people will be happy with. Um, and again, I suppose that just poses a further question. Maybe you know, in an ideal world, I would be I'd be trying to measure tendon stiffness. As well as the calf strength, but we just wanted the capability to do that and or the manpower to do it uh, in our lab.
0: Yeah. In terms of their uh, their strength being good or being reasonable, as you said, then are they getting? I would imagine pain at specific kind of angles or specific positions. So then, are you testing and in, in term are you testing isos and are you doing isos in the training as well? And then, what are you using to test the isometrics in the lab? And then. What ways are you looking to develop them outside of the lab in the gym? Are you doing overcoming or are you doing, um, what's the other one called? Yielding. Yielding, yeah. yes, yielding. I know, almost yeah, got yeah, there, yeah. Colin. Yeah, you know, you're, you're.
1: <laughs> I don't touch you. Um, yeah, so we actually test the cast strength using isokinetic, uh, an isokinetic machine, isokinetic dynamometer. So, it's, um, so they're, they're on the move. So we set the speed at 60 degrees a second and um, we, we also get dorsiflexion peak torque as well as plantar flexor peak torque. Um, and we do that like lying down with the leg straight and then sitting up with an event at, at 90 degrees to get the soleus. And at the start, at the very, very basic level if someone is sore and, and, and you know, or, or maybe poor level of strength, we we'll just do some basic um, concentric eccentric um, heel raises but with good control of the heel, pushing through a big toe, um, get that in place first. And then progress them on then to doing kind of bigger stuff then with a set machine or a leg press depending on what they have um where they go quite heavy and we'll bring in like some isometrics then maybe and um, going really really heavy try and get well above body weight to be able to do repeated holes around five to six seconds at a time and then bring in some really heavy eccentrics toward the end so yeah um so we don't in our study we don't uh, test isometrically but we do give them nice isometri- targets in, in the program so i'll be able to do repeated isometric holes, short repeat isometric holes, 20% more than more than their own body weight of external load in the bar. But just again without deviating too much one of my other studies and we since set up isometric calf strength protocol um on our force plates. So standing straight leg and then and then seated um uh, with a strap over the knee and the um the isometrically push into the force plate. Um, so again we're we're that's that that be that's not something we did in our, in our main RCT but it's a separate sort of reliability that we're also doing as well. So because most clubs and university have force plates. So I suppose we want to be able to do something and compare numbers that others can can do the same thing. Um, because everyone has an isokinetic iso- uh, dynamometer um, to measure calf strength. So uh, yeah, so in my RCT, the, the calf strength is measured using the isokinetic uh, iso- testing, but we'll also um, have, a, have a small little reliability, reliability study uh, for testing isometric calf strength the, with the force plates.
0: This might seem like another strange one, but they're all strange ones, I suppose. So no, yeah. That's the, the way it goes. So obviously you're doing a lot within the confines of the gym to work under strength um, and work under both eccentric, isometric and concentric. But I'd be interested to know if you're assessing any sort of gait as well or biomechanical kind of deficiencies or movement kind of issues. Yeah. Um, Because I would imagine that that's probably a reason that some of them would be presenting. Now, once you work on the strength sometimes those things might figure themselves out, I suppose, when the strength is improved, I'd imagine. But sometimes it yeah. might last a little bit longer because of some kind of movement deficiency or some way that they're maladaptive kind of movement pattern that they're using, I'd imagine.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, we assessed running gait at the start and at week six and week 12. And then, we Bob said, we, we assess our hops at week six and week 12. And even though I said that some people actually present with, some a small few presented with good calf strength, yet they're quite sore and quite uh, symptomatic but they probably have bigger deficiencies in their, in their single leg hops. And that's probably where, again, I mentioned that tendon stiffness is probably the, the bit of a blind spot because we don't have the means to assess it in our lab anyway. But, um, and that might feed into some of the deficiencies in, in their in their, in their run, in their running gate and in their single leg hops, horizontal and vertical. Um, so yeah, we do look at the running gate. So we try to get them to run at a speed. So if, if, if it's a, a an endurance runner, try and get them to run at a speed that they can run at a, you know, run a steady effort for 30 minutes. If it's a field sport player, try to do something that's, you know, like a three-quarter pace effort, so just get, it, get get them running at a speed that's that's reflective of how they run in, in their in their respective sports, and we look at things like contact time, flight time, leg stiffness, and um, we see how much um, how much dorsiflexion they and knee flexion and hip flexion they go into during stance. So see what what their what their ankle and knee and hip angles are like when they strike the ground, and see what what they what they max at, at during mid stance. and we also see how much rotation goes on at the rear foot and the, and the tibia. Uh, and at the hip as well, and, lo- and look at things like pelvic drop and pelvic tilt. So um, yeah, we have a good few variables there that we that we 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 measure and see how they change um, over the course of the rehabilitation program. And I haven't analysed that just yet. I suppose I'm keeping an eye on the, on the strength scores, but uh, we haven't looked at the um, hops or the running data just yet.
0: You've enough the variables there, is right? Like it, it can mm-hmm. be hard when you're isolating them. It seems like they're loads, but I suppose that you're looking at the whole as well and yeah. their running pattern in general and you're using your coach's eye to kind of assess that there, you'd be able to see it pretty quickly, I suppose, if there is. Yeah, but we can, put, we can put numbers on it
1: too because we yeah. we have a 3D, a 3D motion capture for running as well. So we can, yeah. Yeah, the numbers
0: are. well, important to use metrics, obviously, as well, so that people yeah. don't know that you're talking to your, or think that you're talking to your whole, essentially. Um, but yeah, we, know, we know that you're not anyway, Colin, don't worry. Last question on this so. be- before we move yeah. on, um, because we're probably after boring everybody today. I'm very interested in it and you're very interested in it. But if people are coming for Achilles tendinopathy, they'll be very interested in it. But if they're not, then I'm sorry to them all. Uh, outside of working with you guys, I would imagine that with Achilles tendinopathies, well, I would know that load is a major determining factor. So when they go away and they're training with their coaches, are you able to manage their load at all appropriately or give kind of prescriptions? Is it just kind of tell them what they can do and tell their coach what they can do and then let them at it and hope that they follow those guidelines?
1: Yeah, um, it depends. Um, In an ideal world, the coach will be involved. They come in or they they maybe... Email me or give me a shout afterwards um, and, and discuss it and we'd probably advise them on that, just that transition period, you know. And, and ultimately we want to educate the alley too and understand the reason why they may have got into in the first place and how to get out of it. Or if they've had a recurrence of this over the last year or two, which is quite common or more. Um, you know, that if we keep doing the same thing over and over again and, and expect a different outcome, well, you know, we, we know the that that famous quote. So um yeah, so we definitely educate them on load management, how they progress it. And I suppose that sort of um balance between having Good capacity in, in, in the lower limb muscles and, and then also um just being careful how you overload them and allow enough time to recover and adapt so look my, my door is always open to, for the coach to get involved and, and i suppose the more the coach gets involved it makes my job easier too so um you know and, and, and it's in the athlete's best interest uh, whereas just you know suffer so some in some cases just for logistics because you know people come during the day and it's not possible for the coach with work commitments and all the rest and family commitments or even if there's a journey if they come from down the country it's just not possible for them to come up with, with the athlete so um Try to get the message through the athlete and then they can watch their coach and then they can relay it back and forth. So uh try and work out some sort of solution that just gives the athlete the best chance to come out the other side of this, whatever injury they have, not just a case of
0: Yeah, it's very important important that the whole kind of the team is on the same page essentially, isn't it? And it it will be in the coaches and the athlete's best interest that they get in, in touch with you to get as much information as they possibly can and as much information that they feel comfortable taking on, I suppose that they can then apply to the training because we all know the, the classic um, kind of butting heads that occurs sometimes in Ireland between physio athlete, coach, strength and conditioning coach, as they all are pulling the athlete in different directions. And then the athlete just Mm. ends up stagnating and not going anywhere. Whereas if everybody's on the same page, then it's in the athlete's best interest and it always has to be in the athlete or client's best interest. That's the whole goal of it, I suppose, because, if the athlete succeeds and does well then everybody's happy essentially
1: yeah and look I mean a little bit of disagreement is, is not a bad thing I mean I think it's important if someone challenges me on what I'm, why I'm doing something or if I challenge something else that's their chance I suppose to just make sure that you're clear on your thought process and why you're doing things and your justification for, for whatever you, you, you're, you're advising and if, if you have a clear rationale of what you're doing you know and you can bring others with you great but um that's a little bit of debate isn't, isn't always a bad thing but um if someone is going to disagree for the sake of it, and they uh, all because they feel that their their patch is being upset, well then that's the a, a bigger problem there but to, to happen. So,
0: but it's good as a coach as well when somebody does challenge you as well because it it makes you self assess your own kind of systems yeah, and oh coach yeah. that you're using. So like, if they ask you, is there a better way to do this? You'll go and question yourself and, and say, maybe there is a better way to do it. Maybe I can think about it and reframe it and come up with a better solution to this or a more efficient solution than what I've already presented with. And you might not present with yeah. a better solution, but it's always useful or to go commun- back and, and sh- a little change of perspective, I suppose, is always good.
1: Yeah, or communicate it better, you know, and and, and maybe just put it back in their language and and, and, and that they can understand, you know, and and, and I suppose give them a, I suppose a different lens to see it through.
0: That's the number one thing as well. Communication yeah. to the athlete, to the coach, yeah. to anybody like you, you. have to be able. It's no point having all the information if you can't get it across.
1: Yeah, I mean because trust is important. You got to build up those relationships with the athlete and the coach. Um, and you know, you could be the best practitioner in the world, know your stuff, um, have really really good methods, but if your athlete and co- or the coach or both of them don't buy into it, well then, you know, but yet if they, they might have bigger faith in in somebody because they like that person and they like how they communicate and like they feel better after them, but the methods might be questionable or it mightn't be as high quality that might still override someone who's really, really good at what they do, but just mightn't be good at communicating and, and building up that trust. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a, bit of a challenge, but a healthy challenge.
0: A programme is always great on paper, isn't it? But it's, it's mm, getting yeah. it across is the hard thing, I suppose, and getting that buy-in because as you said there, if, there's a subpar program, but they gave a hundred percent buy into that. They'll probably get better results out of that than they will with the best program yeah. ever if they only have like whatever 30% buy into that one. Exactly. Yeah. We will move on then now from the Achilles Tenanopathy talk to moving on to chatting about the Olympics, which you were extremely mm-hmm. active on Twitter over the whole event or the whole games. Um so I was just interested. Obviously, you really enjoyed the games, but how did you manage to catch all the games? Were you getting up at crazy hours of the morning before work to watch them or were you watching them back in the evening?
1: Uh, yeah, I didn't watch all of it. Um, I suppose I, I picked and choose what I could get away with staying up for. Um, so uh, yeah, it was difficult when I'm, when I'm working during the day and that, so um, yeah, no, the, the first week, uh, yeah, I enjoyed actually watching the triathlon, so the, the, the men's and women's triathlon as well as the mixed radio, which I thought was a nice novel uh, event and quite exciting to watch the way it panned out in the end. Um, and then the second week, obviously, the, the track and field was was my, I suppose, uh, area of interest. So, um, yeah, um, stood up for some of the track events. And then the 50K walk was on a Thursday night. I watched that one, um, which went on into quite late, early in the morning. Um, and then uh, nearly paid paid the price with the next day at work on Friday. And then the two Americans would have been on late enough as well, but that was it, over the weekend. So, um, yeah, look, well worth it for those few, you know. So, um, yeah, probably a, I would say, you know, an average enough, performance from an Irish perspective, still a young team, um, you know, a couple stepped up really well and performed really well, um, some would have been disappointed, but look at that just the National Olympics. Olympics, um, you know, um, it, it's, you got one chance every four years or five years in this case, where things turn out to get everything right in the day, and it, you know, for some people it, 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 it works really well, and others, you know, for different reasons, um, it doesn't, so um, yeah, it just can be a bit of a mixed bag, I suppose, from a team point of view.
0: I'd be interested as well to know, if your perspective on how you view the Olympics this time around changed from how you viewed it in 2016 because obviously you participated in the Olympics in 2008 and 2012 being the last time you competed um 2016 I'd imagine you were kind of looking back and in the back of your head even maybe saying oh could I still have done it if I kept pushing and then this year I would imagine it would have been a lot more enjoyable to watch and just sit back and enjoy it as a, a spectator and a viewer
1: yeah. Um yeah, I suppose Rio was still quite fresh. You know, I was only retired properly about two or three years, maybe just over two years before then. So I was still I suppose uh, still felt attached to it. Um and I suppose quite close to at least athletes competing, we we're still competing. And that was I suppose with Tokyo an extra five years is a bit more further removed. So maybe yeah, more far removed from I suppose the cold face of what's going on, you know. So um yeah, probably I probably enjoyed a lot more as a spectator for, for Tokyo. Um and I suppose I was able to see the bigger picture because look even people who look my, my two Olympic experiences you know the outcomes weren't weren't positive so I could definitely relate to people who stepped off the track and struggling to find words to I suppose explain what happened um, there and then when you've got a, a microphone in front of you and, and a camera in front of you as well so I could definitely empathise with that and um, but definitely a lot of admiration for those who did step up and 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 perform and um, you know I suppose finish with a satisfactory outcome whatever that may be if it, if it was a medal in the case of the Roars or, or the boxers or whatever or, or maybe a, a top 12 or a, a I suppose a good semi-final performance um, you know it's, it's all about get, getting your best performance on the day whatever that may be and you know that doesn't always have to be medals because there aren't enough medals for everyone
0: yeah well success for everyone is different I suppose but every, a lot of people talk about that post-Olympic slump and it happens to people that go from an emotional high at the Olympics and they go mm-hmm. from an emotional low at the Olympics and they try to get back to normal life so you touched on there that you have you have particular empathy for the athletes now um, that are experiencing that what is it like to go through that because obviously both times you compete in the Olympics you were unfortunately disqualified in the in mm-hmm. race walking. And you said there, like, there's a camera shoved in front of your face pretty much straight away. And I can imagine that's a very hard thing to deal with. Um, But I'd say it's equally hard to go from, right, I'm after doing the best that I can and I'm after achieving something here. And now it's either retirement or it's take a couple of weeks off and get back to it.
1: Yeah, I think the big challenge is because the Olympics, it consumes you for, you know, that year. And if not, the the three or four years, whatever may be leading up to it. And people probably haven't thought beyond the games and what they might do afterwards in the weeks and months afterwards. And I suppose when you don't have that clear in your head and you kind of come home and, you know, all that kind of time for yourself and that sort of big void, that's when it kind of probably hit people. So um, that's a big challenge for most, most people. I was probably, well, I wouldn't say fortunate, but I, I, I definitely between Beijing and London, I was working another other parts of my career. So I was getting the coaching qualifications. I went back to Satanta, did a second degree in strength and conditioning. I've been, I've been doing that anyway on, you know, uh, shipping away at it and had started uh, so it was a small uh, business, um, set up a small company called the Altra Centre Ireland. So I had, I had different projects going on and I was, after London, I was kind of fully immersed trying to get that off the ground and and, and that, so that sort of made, and I knew after London, you know, with the outcome I had, that it was probably the first time I was probably just questioning whether I had the, the fight to kind of go back and, and continue. Um, living that life and training at that level and trying to compete at that level, you know, because it is, you know, it's, it's, it comes a point where if you're not winning medals, well, then it's going to be hard to justify it from a financial and, I suppose, um, I suppose other, other points of view. So um, that transition wasn't wasn't too bad for me, you know, because I had other things in place and I had worked on it beforehand. So uh, whereas others, I suppose, it can be difficult, um, depending on, I suppose, the sport structure they have around them to be able to manage that. And everyone, look, everyone has a different way of of, of dealing with that situation and, and, and responding to it you know so uh, I think it's just important to have a, have a good good support structure there and, and, and have things to focus on
0: okay deadly so definitely something to focus on just to touch on your Olympic experience and I'm not going to touch on it too much now because it's a long time ago now I'm interested because obviously you're studying now a lot of it comes from a biomechanical perspective and obviously mm-hmm. when you were race walking it was nearly not the biomechanics that let you down but that um Oh, it was, yeah. po- pointed you out to the judges i suppose at times mm. because you don't have the traditional body type of a race walker i guess um yeah so- no, that's a good way of
1: putting it yeah yeah, yeah no I, I i always say like I, I was probably not the most technically gifted athlete um i was probably more of a workhorse. so you know it's picked in my event you could go into a school and get 30 kids to try race for the first time you'll have two or three who will have you know pick up the training straight away you'll have a few who will probably like a decent attempt that I could get better with training in a few who just can't get it all. I was probably in that middle category who wasn't the smoothest, but I would probably was was kind of curious to try and get better at it. And I always had that sort of te- developed that technical eye and um, always had those kind of questions and didn't have any issues until I got into my early 20s and was quite tall and would have stood out. Now, again, that's not trying to make a million excuses, but race, walking and judging is quite subjective. Um, so if you think of it, if you compare it to like refereeing in, in, in most field sports, um, you don't always have that instantaneous um you know video feedback to i suppose to back up your decision so it's quite subjective it's based on what the human eye sees how you interpret the rules and how someone in australia interprets the rules versus someone in africa versus someone in europe can, can differ slightly um so they're always I suppose, in a, in a race we compete on, on a, on a two kilometer circuit and there's usually eight judges um and i could look at the panel of judges and i know that there'd be one or two no matter how good i feel i am or not i was always going to get a card from them because they just didn't quite accept my style and there could be another one or two judges who, if I had a good day, I'd be fine and no issues. If I had a bad day, I'd get a card and that would be fair enough. And then there had a few who probably never give me a card at all. So I was probably a little bit worried before London because I saw the panel of judges. and I knew there was three there that would nearly always give me red cards. So I was kind of a little bit um, concerned about that. And that's, I how it panned out. Um, but anyway, not, not going down that rabbit hole too much. But, um, yeah, so I was always trying to. And I started getting my first few disqualifications in my early 20s. And I was always in the bigger championships where I was a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more at risk where the standard is, is quite high, so I was always trying to solve my own issues, trying to I suppose research things myself. So, um, so I kind of had that that, that sort of interest in in biomechanics, um, trying to fix things, I suppose, whether it's a, and that I suppose I suppose um, spreads into injuries as well, because I would have been a few injuries and would have been coaching as well, and, and, and dealing with different challenges. So, um, that's sort of ignited me interest in that whole area. And now I didn't, at the, at the time, think I'd be going to, I suppose, make a career out of, out, out, out of the field, but um, I suppose I kind of grew and developed from there. Um, and I suppose now, I'm, I suppose I'm used to, most of my workload is maybe 80% of who I see will be injured athletes um, of different sporting backgrounds. And then I still work with a few, who, you know, for, for performance. So, so I'm always, I suppose, trying to find solutions and, um, you know, trying to look for, I suppose, potential reasons why someone might got injured or have this, this issue and, and, and trying to look under rocks to try and find solutions.
0: I'd imagine that those judges may have been more likely to give you the card because they're not used to judging somebody of your kind of stature, the way that you look and the technique that you use as regularly as maybe maybe the other judges. And then the other thing is, uh, like, do you think that you were moving in such a way because your body was kind of going with the path of least resistance, I suppose, and the path that you would experience the least amount of pain? So the easiest way and the most efficient way for your body to do it um, mightn't have been the way that they wanted you to do it, essentially. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose my main issue was a straight knee rule. So most people think race walking is all about contact. I actually never had any problems with, with lost contact. Some people I used to say I was, I was nearly too stuck to the ground, but that's a different argument. But um, my problem was, it was a straight knee rule where when you hit the ground, when your foot strikes the ground, your knee has to be straight. And I would have had what people would have regarded as, as a ragged sort of style. So and then quite a, I suppose, a curvy knee anyway. Um, my right side, and that's what used to get me. So I'd always, if I was in a pack and you had a really fluent Spanish or Italian or someone who comes from, a, I suppose, a, a country where they're really good sound technique, they would make me look bad, you know, whereas I was on my own and a judge had a chance to look at me properly, they would probably give me the benefit of the doubt. So that was, was a challenge in major challenges when you're in a group situation. And in London, the problem was I got to, I got to about nearly 40k. And it was when I actually got detached to from the group where I was a little bit uncertain about my tactics. Should I stay? Should I, should I hold back? And I suppose that I suppose um took away from some of my composure and, and and probably put me a little bit more um I suppose at risk for getting into, into difficulty with the judges. Yeah, but look, I mean I, I'm not gonna change the rules. Um, it is what it is. I had a good shot at it, um, had good opportunities, did my best of what I had. Um, you know, I still had things I could have done better if I, if I was to do it all again. So it's not all, you know, looking, looking for I suppose excuses, you know, and, and and blaming judges or anything like that. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's what I got into
0: and I, and I knew that from the start. But Not from a competition perspective now, but from a biomechanical perspective, because you were taller, maybe, I don't know, this is just a theory that I'm after coming up with on the spot. But would the peak torque going through your joint have been a lot larger than, say, the shorter guys so that then they would and the force going through the joint so that then it'd be a lot easier for them to maintain and hit that heel strike with a straight leg rather than for you? It could have one, maybe presented in a little bit of pain, or two, fatigued you a little bit easier.
1: Yeah, um, fatigue was never really an issue because I often got like, one or two champions. I got, I got, you know, red cards quite early, where in a fifty k, you're not tired, you know, but you're maybe not quite fluent, you're not fully warmed up, not fully firing. So it wasn't really that as such. Um, some people can be quite hypermobile; they, they can hyperextend the knee, whereas I wouldn't. So if someone can hyperextend the knee and they're, they're beside me in a group or in a, in a head-to-head situation, they could make me look worse than than I might be, mm. or I could make them look really good, you know, depending on which way you look at it. So that's another challenge. But no, I mean, and again, sizes and everything. too. yes, I'm tall, I'm six foot two, but there's plenty of others. There's a few others who are six foot two, but would, would are a lot more move a lot more fluently than I did. So it's not all about height either. And um, mm. but if you are tall, you probably just need to be a little bit better and more fluent to actually, you know, show the judges what they want to
0: see. And then you're transitioning now, obviously, well, a long time now, you're into uh, running rather than race walking and yeah. From what you just said there, it sounds like you are, I don't know if you meant it in that way, but you sound like you would be fairly stiff as an athlete, which might be actually a good thing if you're transitioning to running, because that's what I was going to ask. When you were transitioning to running in terms of biomechanics and movement perspective, was there anything that you had to work on specifically to kind of transition from race walking, which you wouldn't have the same forces going through your lower limb than you would when you're running, I suppose, on one leg? uh yeah look let me look
1: we're running is, is 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 down the priority list um after i suppose work family and, and and work commitments but i retired young enough at like 31 32 you know i wasn't going to stop and do nothing so i still wanted to keep fit so i was on away gym and, and and going for a run but i just found it hard to go, go for a run without any target so i spent most of 2014 tw- after i retired and early part of 2015 kind of going for a run but finding it hard to get and run for an hour or 30 minutes without having some sort of a, a target in mind so I remember jumped into a 5K race. It was actually a park run and around 16 something. Then did a 10K. And actually, just when I got to those races, I actually just kind of missed that sort of competitive environment. And then I said, look, I might try to do double marathon that autumn and did double marathon. Like running, you know, four days a week on average. Um, got a few runs done over 20 miles. So the minimum sort of prep was still probably living off the aerobic base I had from a race walk and ran 233. Enjoyed the day out, just enjoy that kind of relaxed. Um, environment you know if I had a bad race who cares like you know my money's doing it just for a bit of fun so and then I suppose as the years went on as running really became a lot more part, part of my morning routine so I kind of like doing my run during the morning I, do, I feel it kind of sets me up for the day and try and do you know aim just have a fairly simple weekly format do like one sort of uh, interval tempo session midweek do a long run at the weekend and then in between then it's just, just easy runs up between could be half an hour to an hour depending on on, on the day and on, on that um, and if I miss a the day then so, so be it and that, so yeah. Look, it's a fairly relaxed approach. I just, I just enjoy competing. Um, a different demand on the body. So yeah, definitely. I, thought was realised how important the calf muscles are for running. Um, slightly different to race walking because you have a lot more bounce in running. Um, definitely, so calf Achilles is quite important. And um yeah, doing a lot more plyometric work as well to to prepare for that. And someone said to me at the start when I when I, when I made my first year running. Someone said like the, you know I look like a, I run like a I run like a race walker. So that, that kind of low to the ground. I'm lacking that bounce. Um. So uh I'd probably sit out as a runner as well if, if someone has to see me in, in in a pack. But anyway, that's a, that's uh neither here nor there. But um but um You can't yeah, get no,
0: disqualified uh, for in a race no for thing, yeah. <laughs> No
1: no 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 but uh no just try and get from A to B and uh as best I can. But um yeah, no, definitely enjoy just competing in, in those few races to do it each year. Um I suppose I missed the Lack of races in the last year and a half, but um, hopefully in, over the winter and into next year we'll have, have them back again proper. So it's pity that Dublin Marathon um, didn't get to go ahead this year, but um definitely like to keep doing as well I can.
0: Um, and you obviously you said it there, like you had that aer- aerobic base to work off of. So when you go on your runs, then I'd imagine you're not really too worried about that. So in your head, are you kind of thinking about your technique when you're running consciously and trying to improve technique? And then within the gym, obviously you said you had to put in a few pliers to try and improve your stiffness yeah. and and like I wouldn't imagine if you're running four days a week you have a young family and you're working in Santry you wouldn't be getting any more than maybe I like, maybe two gym sessions done a week so did you try and a an make off, it yeah. specific in the gym to kind of aid you in that kind of pursuit and running pursuit
1: yeah, I suppose in terms of biomechanics, I'm always I suppose, trying to fine-tune things. I, I try things out because obviously in my work I'm I'm, I'm assessing and trying to coach biomechanical changes in some athletes. Um so I'd be trying things out like myself to get a feel of it and even just use, use myself as my own guinea pig. And the same with my SNC work, you know, because I I, I suppose well I coach plyometrics, I assess plyometric ability. Um so I'll be you know I'll be, be using that as well to try out new things um and, and get a feel of it and um, have things clear in my head if I if I was to introduce it to someone another athlete. But uh yeah, no, I I do two SNC sessions a week when I can. Sometimes it doesn't always work out that way, but um, I generally run in the mornings early enough when I get up and before work. And then um usually a Tuesday and a Friday evening I do s an S C session because we've a gym at work, so it makes it easier to get it done before I head home. Um but again it's just it just keep it short and sharp. I don't need to do as much extensive work because of a I've been doing SNC work for the last 20 years anyway as an athlete. So, you know, I have a decent enough base. Um so I normally just try and focus on maybe one good quality plyo exercise, maybe an Olympic lift or a or a squat and then some sort of single leg lift and maybe some calf work, When I need to do it. And then if uh, I've had two hamstring injuries in the last uh, less than two years. So I've been doing a little bit of hamstring rehab on and off as well. So, um, yeah, so any kind of problem here is I'll maybe just do something to kind of deal with that as well.
0: That's an interesting one then for distance running, the hamstring injury. So... What mm. was kind of making that occur? Do you think was it on heel strike that you were you were getting the pain, or was it proximal distal? Like any more info? Info without giving your full uh, uh, medical record yeah. here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, no, actually, back in my in my race walking career, I had a, my right hamstring. had a grade one strain in the bicep femoris back before the European Championships in 2010. I was a bit a month out, so. I had two weeks there where I was kind of touch and go, and I just about made it. And actually, I had one of my better championship performances. I finished eleventh on the day. I think I ended up finishing ninth or tenth after one or two athletes had me were tested positive since. So, um, yeah, that was that was my right side. And then was that was twenty ten, and then in twenty nineteen, before Dublin marathon, I had the similar, had a grade two injury to the same area, Seth morris um but it was just a week we had our first baby was was um she was a few months old we had one weekend where it was a month out from the marathon Did the long run we had our christening the day before i was quite tired sleep quality wasn't great i remember just one Tuesday morning after that long run on a Sunday which went quite well but i knew i was quite tired on the morning Tuesday and just that Tuesday morning the hamstring it wasn't like a sniper where i got like a sudden sort of darting pain but it was just kind of like a, towards the end of it i could feel that sort of dull soreness i was like that doesn't feel right and then didn't think a whole lot of it the next day then, i tried to do a session I had to stop and i knew something wasn't right so then i Luckily where I work, I was able to get an MRI scan quite quickly and it was a grade 2B. So 2B being the muscle tendon junction. And that was just less than three less than four weeks after the double marathon. So I had to, I suppose, rehab it really well. So I did a quite intensive block for two weeks. Um maybe missed about two or three days of running, but was able to sort of run at a, a low level um, where it was a little bit of pain. Now again, I suppose I was able to take risks on myself because look, if it was if I wasn't going to make double marathon, not the end of the world. So I was able to take risks on myself that I probably wouldn't do if I was working with someone else. Um so I was quite aggressive with the rehab, measured my hamstring strength. I had a 30% difference in, in, in my injured versus my uninjured side. So using that as a target to try and even things out a bit. So But a week and a half out, I got that deficit down to less than 10%. And a week out from the marathon, then I did a 15-mile run with, with the last six miles quite steady and close to the marathon. Pace, and I, was, I was pain-free on that, so I knew I was confident going into the marathon then. Uh, and that actually worked out quite well. I run around 2.23 that day, and which is a PB, a big PB. And then I did national championships then in June this year probably with a minimum preparation. Um, So the tank on the track didn't have a great race. was kind of not feeling great from early on. It was kind of like a hot, humid day as Ireland goes. So a lot of other athletes were struggling as well. So um the last lap, I just felt the hamstring go. I thought it was an exact reoccurrence of what I had before double marathon. And then got an MRI scan a week later and it was, it was a grade three of the semi-membranosis. So mm-hmm. different, different hamstring muscle on the same side. So um a bit more tricky Um took probably a little bit longer. Again, I suppose it wasn't it wasn't as much urgency to rehab because it because of no real, Around that time, Dublin Marathon was was was, was announced as, as being uh, postponed. So there was no great urgency. So, so it's still rehabbed away, and it was I was probably took to the end of July before I was able to run fairly pain free again. And you know, run a 10k race there two weeks ago, which which went okay. Like so. So yeah, like I suppose the message in that too is that this was always at risk of a reoccurrence, especially with soft tissue injuries as as we get older. So it was hard to I suppose. And you asked the question there, like why would, why did it happen or whatever. Um, I would say fatigue for the first injury in 2019. Fatigue probably a factor, and probably maybe uh. I so when you have an injury in one site. Um, I suppose that, that, was, uh, that time, it was a month before double Marathon. it did the marathon and um, took a few weeks off afterwards. And ideally, you should probably just keep rehabbing for another two or three months just to make sure. Because when there's tendon tissue involved where the injury occurs, there's probably ongoing healing and remodeling going on that, that needs that needs a sort of stimulus from the, from the strength work. And um, if you need it like that, then there's always a risk of it coming back again. Um, so perhaps when an injury to the bicep fem. Uh, it might have changed how I coordinate on the hamstrings, and then I suppose the semi member notes was probably taking a bit of extra load. Now it is a high-force muscle, but yeah, it's just a curious question as to how that one went. Um, when when it was the bicep fem that went before, so it's probably just uh, yeah, maybe compensating for what the bicep fem wasn't yeah. doing, and maybe extra load on the semi-mem. Yeah, but,
0: uh, but that that injury was in competition. Obviously, the other one was I was more interested in, um, because it was in training essentially, and yeah. we came, as strength and conditioning coaches, and you have been self coached for quite a long time i think if i'm if i'm correct yeah, yeah. sometimes we can be our own worst enemies and you just kind of alluded it to it there when you said about the rehab i did some things that i probably wouldn't do with anyone else are you generally i would have imagined you'd be good at being kind of self-perceptive and saying right i didn't sleep well last night or the night before i'm not going to go and push it or because coming from that athletics background is it kind of ingrained in you i'm grand i'm going to keep going and push it and then that's yeah, why well, what, the I mentioned thing what I mentioned, happened.
1: What yeah, no. What I meant with that rehab is, is that like I, I probably pushed my load aggressively enough um, to try and get a response that I would. I'd find it hard to do it directly because you need to trust what you're doing here. So I trust it myself, but I was also willing to take that risk because if it flared up again and I wasn't able to run the marathon, i will still be it. You know. Um. But I just kind of, you know, just I suppose put the basics of you know stress, recover, adapt in place. So load of the tissue one day, be a little bit sore doing it, be a little bit sore the day after but no one if I gave it two or three days again. It should be able to tolerate a little bit more so i kind of kept working on that cycle chase down those deficits and um trusting that those, that the tissue was getting getting good stimulus and able to sort of maybe maximize his own healing response and able to adapt a lot quicker versus maybe being more conservative with it so there's definitely a message in that and then i suppose that's why even go back to my Achilles my study you know one group is guided by pain in terms of how they progress whereas i'm guided more by my group is guided more by hitting certain targets and see does that take care of pain and, and from my own experience that's what happened what I said it was a combination of trusting myself but being willing to take that risk whereas if I was working there at least and if I was pushing them as aggressive as, as I pushed myself they just might be kind of asking questions a little bit more um a little bit more apprehensive about it but go back to I suppose when it happened yeah look it was a busy weekend got my sessions done but I was you know there was a day or two there where I was quite tired and that's probably where I suppose the combination of things just interacted and, and, and uh, contributed to, the, to that but um it, it, it worked out in the end anyway at that time. I
0: hate these things happen and it's yeah. never it's never one factor as we both know anyway, but and I was just interested. No, no, no. And then the last thing I wanted to touch on before we go to quickfire questions is the Altitude Centre, which you are the director yeah. of, Um, I was reading. So is it kind of a, a live high, train low kind of approach that you use with those athletes that avail of that service? And how much kind of work do you have to do with that uh, company now? Or is that kind of just left to work on their own and you kind of just... The
1: benefits, I suppose. Yeah, no, it's my my own company that I founded. Um, so basically, I'm a friend, it's a franchise of a UK company. So I kind of operate in Ireland. So we provide simulated altitude equipment, so altitude tents or altitude mask systems. And we also do like uh, install altitude equipment in gyms and stuff. Now, again, few and far between in Ireland, but um, got involved first when I was based in in Limerick and UL, um, back in the late 2000s. I put a proposal together to build an altitude house on campus. I got the go ahead in the UK company, the altitude Alt- Alt- centre got the contract. And I suppose off the back of that then, I set up the, I suppose their franchise in Ireland to be like a distributor of their, of their products. So, um, yeah, look, it's just a side venture. Um, it's a small niche market. Um, so I usually have a few um, pieces of equipment in stock that I rent out um, to athletes on demand and then and also have a, have a sales market and then um, a little bit of consultancy work as well. So people maybe go on altitude training camp, they might want to be a bit more individualized and specific on their altitude protocols, so maybe help map out a plan for them. And also work with mountaineers who take on sort of high altitude challenges to try and help them, I suppose, prepare and, and particularly see what the risk is like for getting altitude sickness. We can do a test on them and be able to, I suppose, give them a, an individualized plan. Because everyone, everyone responds differently to to altitude. So 2,000 meters or 3,000 meters of altitude can be easy for, for one person, could be very hard for someone else. So it's how they, with, with simulated equipment, you can set the altitude to a lower level to allow someone to get used to lower altitude first before they ramp up to, to higher altitude so um yeah so a combination of us was a rental market a sales market and, and some consultancy work
0: do you have a specific kind of time of the year that's most busy then coming up the competition like say pre-athletic event and then i i don't know what the story is with mountaineering but i'd imagine it's mm. very weather dependent as well so is it um busy at certain times of the year and then kind of not as bit bu- not so busy at others
1: yeah, it's surprisingly, actually, during, during the first lockdown last year, it was quite busy because, particularly in field sports, so I had a few inter-county players, I had a few, and some of the Irish women's hockey team who wanted, who because well, they weren't able to train in groups, they wanted to be able to maximize what they do on their own, or in their own sort of pod So if was two or three athletes or players having to live together, they could actually work together and to share the equipment. So I had a, had a few people uh, I was working with on that, but generally would have had a lot of athletes, um, individual athletes, particularly in athletics and maybe triathlon, who would use the altitude tent system, so live high, train low, because they can get better benefits from that so they would rent a tent or else they'd buy one and, and, and they'd use it for like say f- sleep in it for four weeks at a time try and get 12 hours exposure d- d- per day for four weeks to maximize the benefits um so for athletics it can be quite seasonal um for most sports it can be quite seasonal and um, so pretty much from say spring to maybe around this time of year uh, will, be, will be the busiest time of year but mountaineering kind of tends to roll over ro- 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 all year round so
0: yeah that's very interesting I, I wasn't aware of that until i did my little bit of research so um that's a good Mm. little venture and it's been going on for quite some time as well And obviously it's it's obviously booming by the sounds of things since since it's a small it's it's a small side venture so look at it. um that's
1: something of interest in too because i would have i would have trained at altitude lot in my own career so and altitude always worked well for me so it's easy for me to to i suppose to to stand over um the value of it
0: do you have a specific website for the altitude center then that they can get in touch with you or is it just your email
1: uh just my email. Yeah, I've, I've yeah, just can use social media channels uh, for it. Um so at altitude irl on Twitter where you can find us on Facebook. Or they, the main sort of our main um, UK franchise or UK company would be the altitudecenter.com uh, altitude not not there. So altitudecenter.com.
0: And your own Instagram and Twitter is Colin Griffin50K, is it? At Colin Griffin
1: for Twitter and Colin Griffin50K for Instagram.
0: Okay, perfect. Right, quick fire questions, and then we'll let you get b- back to it. Um, whether you're going at more um, PhD work or you're going mm. to do the things around the house, I'm not sure, but busy time, as you mm. just alluded to earlier. So, the first question is your proudest achievement to date?
1: Oh, um, yeah, so I suppose in sport, um, probably qualifying for London Olympics in my last attempt at a World Cup event because I had a few attempts that hadn't gone well for different reasons. And it was my last attempt 11 weeks out. and wasn't feeling great early on and uh, had two red cards at 9k. Thought I was going to get a third one and actually found I was getting feeling better as the race went on and had one of the best performances ever as, as the race turned out. So it was kind of like a, a race of two halves as I, as I described to people before. Um, so to do that, well I suppose, with with a lot of uh, things working against me in the, in the lead up to it.
0: I remember that actually because I remember you got two red yeah. cards and I, I, I was thinking, I was yeah. like, there's no way that uh, he's going to get through. But you finished, yeah. was that top? 12 or top 15 uh, or something that
1: time i was I think it was 15th on the day and then there was three or four russians tested positive since then so i think i might have been Might if you look back the results now i kind of haven't really looked at probably I think about probably 12th officially now
0: my research was, was not good now i been. i pulled both those numbers <laughs> out of my arse that was on. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that was impressed. just complete question very impressed <laughs> um, your next question then is favorite athlete of all time Ooh. um
1: yeah, I'd have to say in academics, um, Elliot Kipchoge, Um, I think just the way it's very hard for someone to be like a world record holder in, in City Martins well, and also be a, a championship performer. And just the way he handled himself in the Olympics, because um, he would have had a different conference and got beaten in London Marathon last autumn. Um, you know, and you, people would have thought that was what he probably had used up his chef life and, you know, given where he's at age-wise and all the rest and what he's achieved, that he was in a little bit of a decline. And then, you know, what he did in in Tokyo was impressive. Just the way he looked earlier on, the way he was calm and composed, you know, that was just, uh, it was quite impressive. So yeah, to, to be the first man to break two hours in a marathon. And um, I know it was a, an artificial race and other things too, but it was a combination of, I suppose, science and technology, as well as his human capabilities, you know, so it's still impressive to see. And so definitely as of now, I'd say he's my favorite at least of all time.
0: It was still something to behold, even though it was kind of staged, as he said, but like he still did it. Oh, yeah, essentially. Course, like, yeah, I mean, and
1: someone us was, was will in, in the future um, do it in, a, in, a, in, a, in an official race with, I suppose, less technology available, but yeah.
0: Yeah, he's When you talk about next level, like he's next level in his um, his kind of domain. Next question then is favorite obscure footballer or football in moment. Now, this can be. I'd say for yourself, it's probably going to be football, Gaelic football, mm. um, and you, um, can, you can mention an uncle or two if you want. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, I suppose, look, uh, even if I'm going to soccer, and I wouldn't be a mad soccer fan as compared to when I was younger, but um, I just watched the interview there between Roy Keane and Gary Neville there last week on Sky, and looking back, I think was this week was the 20th anniversary of an Ireland-Pitt-Holland, and I think just Roy Keane's performance that day, the way he just midfielder, he just chased everything down, led by example as a captain, put his body in the line. You know, yes, he's a character. Yes, he's a, a strong personality and uh, doesn't suffer fools. But um, yeah, he's, he's one footballer that I would probably admire, you know, for different reasons, I suppose, the way he conducts himself on off the pitch. I'm not saying I'm, I, I agree with everything he says or does, but, um, you know, I wouldn't say he's perfect by any means, but um, for someone who practice what he preaches, puts his body in the line, um, demands high standards and, and and sets high standards of himself. And like in, in reflection now, even with his interview with, with Gary Neville last week, you know, he's willing to, I suppose, put his hand up and maybe say, yeah, look, i got certain things wrong or I, you know, there is a bit of a
0: humbleness to him as well, so. Yeah, I'm a big Roy Keane fan. The, the memory that kind of springs to mind when you mentioned that whole match is he had a huge tackle on Mark Overmars in that match where Overmars yeah. went flying over the top of him. But yeah, yeah. As you said, I, I I like the way he goes about his business. Everything he does, he kind of does to the best of his ability, which is something that you can kind of yeah. take from him. Like even on Sky Sports, as you said, there like he he gives 100% of himself and he's always well prepared for whenever he's doing any sort yeah. of analysis. So that's something that, that can be definitely taken from him. Uh, next one then is an artist you've been listening to a lot recently.
1: Um, yeah, I suppose in the last maybe year or two, Dermot Kennedy will be one. And I've, I've been trying to, get to one of his concerts. Um even though I live not far from about High Castle, I've um there's one I just yeah he he he, he had one on uh, back in twenty nineteen, week or two after our, our first was, was born so I didn't quite get to that one and then he he had one or two planned and that had to be cancelled because of COVID. So yeah I'd love to get to see him live at some stage.
0: He's another one coming up now and it's probably not the best time timing again. I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's Murphy's law as they say anyway, but you look yeah, um someday. Someday is right. Um next one is what books have you been reading li- lately? Um, God, nothing. Do you else, have
1: time? Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, the last year or two now, um, I started my own work. It's hard. I don't you know I, I, I download stuff in Kindle, but I never get a chance to read it. So I'm, like, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not a fiction person. Um, I like just reading autobiographies, personal development books. But a lot of my reading at the moment now has been, I suppose, uh, related to PhD work over the last year or two. So, yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't think of it, uh, yeah. It's been a while since i read a proper book now, cover to cover. That's of interest.
0: What about give us one or definitely, two of, definitely of, my to- your, list. of your number one mm. um, biomechanical or strength and conditioning kind of books that yeah, everybody no, should no, read, a good, read yeah. or, or, or a young strength and conditioning coach should definitely read?
1: Yeah. I'm just looking at my bookshelf here in front of me. Um, yeah, I think the essentials of strength and conditioning. Um, I um, can't think of who's the author. Of that. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of authors, but that will be one anyway there's the high performance um high performance something uh, david joyce is the author of that one you probably know that one as well and it's a good one to, it's a good one as well because you got you know you, you have guest authors who contribute chapters to it so um it's a good reference as well yeah i think look any of the sort of standard textbooks is probably a, a good starting point but to be honest with you, like i think just the more you get involved and and, and get coach and and talk to other coaches and try things out and and, and reflect and learn you know you'll I suppose learn a lot more that way, but well, I suppose just yes, it's good to have a good basic theoretical background to understand principles and basics of anatomy and physiology and biomechanics.
0: Yeah, that's the prerequisite essentially, and then after that, it's your practical application that makes you a good coach. So, you're you're required yeah. to kind of know the theory, but as you said there, and as we alluded to, how you communicate and how you practically apply that is what will set you apart from the field essentially. And with all of the books as well, you kind of said it there. There, there was many authors to a couple of books that you read there when you're coming in as a strength conditioning coach first don't just read a couple of books and not get the alternative perspective per se because sometimes the authors of certain books might have a vision or a way of looking and a perspective of looking on things and it'll be very biased so it's important to get the other the other perspective as well I would say
1: yeah definitely definitely
0: the next Um, question then Colin is what's the biggest thing that you've learned in the last 12 months
1: Whew. Uh, yeah, well, I suppose given if you look at the wider societal issues uh, with COVID and that, I suppose, recognizing that, you know, we there are a lot of things we don't know. You know, if you look at the debate around the pandemic and, and restrictions and that too, you know, at start, none of us knew what was going to happen. None of us knew anything about the virus yet. People were getting quite tribal on social media and, you know, getting quite heated and a lot of nasty stuff flying around. And I just thought, you know, to myself, sometimes I just better stay in out those things, and maybe just uh, acknowledging that we don't know everything, and uh, you just can't really make absolute conclusions on things that you just you know you don't have the full complete picture of, you know. And, and I suppose science was trying to catch up as well, uh, and it did, you know, with the vaccines as well. And what we did there in, in 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 a in the space of nine months to get a vaccine ready, not perfect, but ready, and at least able to do something to try and curb it. Um, and a little bit more work to do, I suppose, in terms of boosters and everything else. And we know that it doesn't doesn't completely protect you but i think that can spill over to, into sports science or, or that as well that you know research is all about there's a lot of unknowns we're trying to piece together things that we we know and uh, we still have to acknowledge the things that we don't know
0: yeah stay away from the absolutes because there are no absolutes in science yeah. generally no no um yep. the last question then is what would you tell your 18 year old self
1: Ooh, yeah um well, it's a long time to I anything um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, just to, in, yeah, just to, I suppose, in, enjoy the journey a little bit more, um, you know, years and, dec- and, dec- and decade come go by very, very quickly, you know, um, and not to have regrets, you know, um, I took a lot of risks when I was when I was young, um, especially after college, like I, I, I graduated when I was 22, went to training full-time, people thought I was mad, you know, and, and that's when it does get tough when you're to training a full-time athlete, when you get to your late 20s, because you can get away with things when you're a student in your early 20s, but you get to your late, late 20s, pushing on 30, and you're living in full-time, I suppose, trying to train like a full time at least but you don't have I suppose the you know you don't have income security you don't have career security you know so that that's that's, that's difficult but at the same time you got to put it in those situations and, and, and not to have have regrets so I definitely say um, you know take risks if you have a, something that you're really really passionate about by all means chase it down try and allow yourself to enjoy, enjoy the, the process as well um, so yeah
0: 100% great advice thanks for coming on Colin that was great really enjoyed it thanks again and best thanks of luck with Baby number two. Mm-hmm, thank you very much. Yeah.